If you have your copy of God's Word with you, how about if you open it up to the book of Acts, to uh, chapter 16. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to be at verse 14. We left off with verse 13 last week. I believe God's got something to say to you. Do you believe that this morning? Yeah. I'm, I'm confident that He does, and I, I know that many individuals come into church looking for an encounter with God. I think you're going to find yourself with a fresh encounter this morning. Before we jump into Acts chapter 16 this morning, just two things to pull to your attention. Um, This week, Larry Brown and um, Craig Sawdon and Garrett Kerr are leaving to go down to Mississippi. They're going to be part of a uh, a mission project, uh, doing a little restoration work for uh, Samaritan's Purse. So pray for those guys, would you, as they set out on that trip. Um, If you don't know them, just tell God those three guys, okay? Um, I know if you don't all know them by name, but it, it's Craig and Garrett and, and Larry. So if you can think of that, raise them up before the Father as they do this trip. And then uh, the other thing is this. Um, over the course of the summer, New Hope has continued to grow, increase in numbers. It's hard to know based on which service you go to to keep track of that. But um, in children's ministry, we severely need assistance need workers to help with that program down there. And you don't have to be called by God to change diapers, right? Okay? You hear that? Okay. You don't. Okay. Believe me, you don't. You don't have to be called by God to change diapers. But that's not the only thing that we need help with in children's ministry. For instance, this last week, my wife Lori signed up to help in children's ministry um, in the registration area. As, as new individuals come into the church and they need to be put into this, the database, into the system, so Lori's going to be one of the greeters down there. Consider the way that God might have you serve in that area. It's a really severe need right now. Lots and lots of kids coming in and not enough places to put everybody. And so we've had to expand out into the fellowship hall. That means we need new teachers, new instructors. So if you feel that maybe you've got some bandwidth in your life, and I know many of you serve already. You've got different areas where you're plugged in. But just consider if that's a possibility for you, okay? All right, let's go to God's Word, and we're going to be looking at um, Acts 16, as I said, but what I want to do for you is start with an anchor verse. For the last four weeks, I've been giving you an anchor verse that represents the passage that we're in. This morning, this anchor verse is from Romans 8.28, and it says this, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. How many of you grew up in church? You've heard that verse before, right? Okay, That's very, very familiar stuff. Maybe you've heard it most of your life, and you've really never been able to give application to it. I think this morning you're going to see application to that particular anchor verse. God says He causes all things to work together for good. What about when things don't go the way I plan? Is that true then? Even when things don't go the way I want them to go, is God still at work? We get to measure ourselves this morning just like we did last week. We looked at the situation with Paul and Barnabas. They got into the disagreement. They separated. It became Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas went to the north. They started out by meeting Timothy. They wanted to go to the Black Sea. God said no. They wanted to go to Ephesus. God said no. God ended up with them at Troas and said, I want you to come to Greece. I want you to be on the European continent. I think in those moments when Paul felt like he was not understanding what God was up to, he probably felt fairly weak. He's the one who wrote, I understand that when I'm weak, God's strong. Number one thing you need to understand when you feel like things are not going the way that you plan, 
when you feel like you're at your weakest, understand, your God stands ready when you're at your weakest. He says, in your weakness, I'm made strong. Not that God gains strength because God's always strong, right? But it's when we really realize how strong He is when we're at our weakness. So I want you to hear this because it's going to sound a little bit cliche to you, but you're going to hear it this morning. Your God stands ready this morning to transform your problems into praise. Do you believe that? He does. God stands ready to transform your problems into reasons for praise, opportunities for praise. At the risk of sounding a little bit like a TV preacher this morning, I, I, I'm going to sound I'm, I'm a little bit like I'm giving you a health, wealth, and prosperity message. That's, that's not what I am due. If you're new to New Hope, that's not who I am. I'm not about God giving you a mansion and a Mercedes, okay? Just send me a check and I'll tell you how to do that. See, that, that, that's typically what you hear from TV preachers. Individuals will say, uh, God's got a mansion and a Mercedes for you. You send me a check and I'll tell you how to get it. That's not our God. But I do believe our God stands ready to turn your problems into praise. You get to see that in Acts 16 this morning. All too often, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are guilty of forgetting we follow the God who specializes in taking on our problems. Let's go into Acts 16. Verse 14 says this, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So we've got an individual who's listening to Paul. Where we left off at last week is they're on the side of the river, sitting outside the city of Philippi. Synagogue was not existent in the city of Philippi because they're too small of a fellowship. There weren't enough Jews to put together a fellowship, and there are only women sitting on the bank of the river when Paul arrives. So this Jewish population is very, very tiny, no synagogue, they've got a place of prayer, and Paul meets Lydia. And Lydia is this individual who's a very successful businesswoman. She's from Thyatira. Luke mentions these details not by accident. Thyatira is the place where purple was developed. This seller of purple cloths, we're told that's her business. Well, because she's from Thyatira, it makes sense that she's taken a branch of the business and she's brought it to Philippi. So these details are not minor for us to understand. She's a very, very wealthy person. And she sells to very, very wealthy people. Purple was only worn by royalty and by those who were very, very wealthy because purple was ridiculously expensive. So we have an individual who's successful in business. She's sitting on the banks of the river. She's obviously not Jewish, but she's participating with the Jews. She's a worshiper of God, Scripture says. Verse 14, a worshiper of God, that's a title. That's a title for someone who's Gentile, who's not Jewish, but believes in the Hebrew God. So we've got a Gentile reading the Hebrew Scriptures, sitting on the bank of the river with these Jewish women, listening to Paul, the rabbi, speak. And she's not yet grasped who God is, but she's willing to worship the Creator God. She understands there's more to this world than just business. So we've got a person from her view who's located herself in Philippi to expand her business enterprise. But from eternity's view, God brought her to Greece so that she would hear the Gospel. So if you have your Bible open this morning and you don't mind writing in your Bible, I'd be circling the word spoken in verse 14. It says that this, she's listening to the things spoken by Paul. Here's why I want you to circle that and why it should be significant to you. 
Paul's not preaching to her. Paul's not standing on a platform talking to a large group of people. He's talking to her in personal conversation. This word spoken means literally they're just in dialogue back and forth. It's what you do when you go to the workplace, when you're in your neighborhood, when you're in your house and you're talking about the things of Jesus to your coworkers and your friends. That's what you see Paul doing. He's in dialogue with this intelligent woman, talking with her about the things of God. We're told she listens attentively So she's got religion, but she doesn't have Jesus. And God, as a result of her listening, opens her heart. You praying for somebody in your life this morning? Somebody who you know needs Jesus? Are you praying for someone whom you wish would be exposed to the gospel? Pray for what you see right there. Pray for what you see in verse 14, that God would open their heart. Because you can talk to your blue in the face, but if God doesn't open their heart, it's going to yield nothing, right? If God opens their heart, they'll respond. That's what you see going on here. The most important element in talking to someone who needs Jesus, talking to them about that, is that you're really concise and clear with the gospel message, but you leave the results to God. Let's move on. Verse 15, And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In the ancient world, hospitality was really, really, really critical because what you think of as hotels or inns, they were little more than brothels. They just were really, really dirty places to be. People of reputation didn't want to stay in the inns. It's one of the reasons you see Paul writing to the women at the the church when Timothy is pastoring over church saying, young women, keep your homes in good order. Because Christian travelers needed a place to go. They they needed a place to be cared for where they could experience the love of a family when they're on the road. It's really high priority in the first century to keep their homes in order where travelers could come in. So we see Lydia right away doing this. Now the church takes root and the church no more takes root and people are saved than Satan shows his ugly head. Look with me at the next verse, verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. You're going to see a clash of light and dark when you move through this passage this morning. God against Satan. Light against darkness. And it begins right here in verse 16. In modern terms, this girl's a medium. What we think of as a fortune-teller. And she's in communication with the dark world. No one watching her thinks that this is a sham. No one watching her believes that this is a a person who's insane. They totally believe that this girl has the ability to tell the future. You're looking at true demon possession here. In the Greek and Roman world, they put great stock in premonition and the powers of premonition. No military leader would go off to a war campaign without first consulting an oracle, trying to understand what was going to be the outcome of the campaign that they're launching into. So we've got a slave girl with clairvoyant gifts. She's a gold mine. She's a veritable gold mine for her owners. She has the ability to see into the future through the powers of the dark world that work through her. And we've got Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke moving through the streets of Philippi, walking and talking in dialogue about Jesus. And this girl shows up and she begins shouting 
about who these guys are. Move forward with me into the next verse. Verse 17, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. Question, is Satan behind that? Is Satan at work in that moment? I believe he is. Let me show you why. I believe that that's exactly what's going on here. See, once you resolve that issue, the objective becomes really, really obvious. The intent here is to discredit Paul and Silas. Do you notice that the claims that she makes are completely true? The demon speaking through her is speaking in biblical terms. The God of the Most High. Well, that's the God of Israel that's spoken of in the Old Testament. The way of salvation. Well, that's talking about Jesus, clearly but not giving clarity to it, just making one sentence statements. See, Satan's willing to speak the truth when it serves his purposes, but only for the purpose of discrediting and derailing. Let me help you to understand what's going on here. This statement that she's made, even in that statement, is, it's open to huge misunderstanding for the pagan ears of the first, world, uh, the, the first century world. The depth of the truth that's stated in those two phrases is not so easily condensed into just one phrase. Here's why. When I say to church people, the God of the Most High, you know immediately who I'm speaking of. The Creator God, God of the universe, the God of the Bible. But if you were to say God Most High in the presence of the first century pagan world, they'd immediately begin thinking of Zeus. They're not thinking of God Creator. They're in a polytheistic world. There's many gods. Well, they distinguish Zeus by calling him the God Most High. Many gods, small g, in their world. Well, even the phrase, the way of salvation, is not clear. Because Claudius, when he became Caesar over Rome and over the Roman Empire, declared himself to be the Savior of the people, the way of salvation. See, it's very unclear what she's talking about. And she's following Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke throughout this monstrous city, screaming out, these men are servants of the God Most High. Well, how annoying does that become day after day after day after day after day? Well, apparently, according to the next verse, it becomes really annoying. It says in verse 18, part B, Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. If you're new to this passage, you might be looking at that thinking, well, isn't Paul there to preach the gospel? Why is he against free publicity? I mean, he's like going to gather an audience. You've got this girl screaming this out. God needs no marketing from Satan, right? Needs no marketing whatsoever. Understand what's going on here. The the, the word that's actually used is the word encrazo, and it means she's screaming constantly. The word encrazo is where we get the English word crazy. Screaming like a crow, according to Scripture. Squawking. So Paul has shut her down. He stopped what's been going on. And with the departure of the demon, the demon is not the only thing to vanish. Poof. Just like that. Their fortune, their income, their cash flow is gone. Go with me to the next verse, verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews 
and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. Verse 19 says, the hope of the prophet is gone. Do you notice that the owners have zero concern for this formerly demon-possessed slave girl? Zero concern. Their only interest is that their income is gone. Would you not love it if that passage said, Paul delivered her from the demon and the people all rejoiced and celebrated? The girl's free! But it doesn't say that. It says they're enraged. They're enraged because they've lost their cash flow. You start messing with someone's cash flow who doesn't know God and have a relationship with God, it can get really, really ugly. So verse 19 says, they seize Paul and Silas, they drag him into the marketplace. The marketplace, understand, is it's called the Agora. This, this is the hub of the social life of the first century world. Everything takes place in the marketplace. Not just where the magistrates are seated, not just where they issue public proclamation or judgments. This is where buying and selling takes place. So there's crowds of people in the midst of the marketplace. Understand what's going on here. Is the owners are acting specifically according to Roman law. They're doing exactly what they're allowed to do. In the first century, a plaintiff could take a defendant and literally drag them by the collar into court, asking a magistrate to render a verdict. You see James writing about that in James 2.6 when he talks about Christians being dragged into court before the magistrates. A little background for you to help you understand this setting. In the Roman world, there, there were the, the regions of the Roman Empire, and then there were the outlying regions that were known as the colonies. And in the colonies, there were always two magistrates. Philippi is a colony. So it has two magistrates who sit together in the agora, in the marketplace, and they render judgments about public dealings in that setting. There's also underneath those two magistrates individuals who are known as lectors. And the lectors, we'll we'll think of them as kind of like bouncers, okay? They're the guys who are the enforcers. They can bring out and act upon what the magistrates decide. So the lectors, the bouncers, carry with them something like a nightstick. And it's quite long, about four feet long. In one end of it is buried an axe head where they can carry out executions if necessary. But the length of the rod is made of rods bound together, individual sticks that are bound with twine. And they use the opposite end of that stick for beatings, for public floggings. So that's what you're watching unfold here as this story develops. The charges that have been brought against Paul and Silas are obviously prejudicial. You look at verse 20 and you can see it. They're throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. I mean, it's what we expect them to do, being Jews. See, here's the problem. Rome permitted the worship of religion. They they allowed it, but only those that they sanctioned. Only recently, Caesar Claudius had evicted all of the Jews from Rome, from the capital city. He didn't want them there anymore. We don't want any part of your worship in our city. So all the Jews have been sent packing. Well, that word had made its way out into the provinces and into the colonies. So these individuals who bring these charges have a pretty good case. they got Jews spreading a religion that's not sanctioned by Rome. There's a degree of anti-Semitism going on because of Claudius. That's why you don't find Timothy and Luke being dragged before the magistrates. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. 
Now, the charges are enough to manipulate a reaction, and it stirs up the crowd, and mob rule kicks in. Go with me to the next verse, verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison. My observation, the magistrates have failed miserably, not upholding the high, high standards of Roman justice. Around the world, the barbarian countries, they were known for no justice. But Rome, you expected justice from the Roman Empire. Do you notice there's no investigation whatsoever? It's the accusation that wins. See, if there had only been an opportunity for a whisper of a defense, Paul could have said, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. Silas is a Roman citizen. You can't flog us. But there's no opportunity for that. So verse 22 says they're stripped and beaten. How humiliating to have your clothes removed from you in public. And they're stripped for scourging. And the command is... They will be rotted. And so they flip the axe head over and put the axe head on the opposite end and they use the very long handle and they begin striking them with the rods hitting their back and ripping their skin open. See, the same rods that were given to the lectors to represent Roman law and justice is now being used to severely beat Paul and to severely beat Silas. Paul writes about this. You've seen it before just a few weeks ago. Here's an example, 2 Corinthians 11, when he's older, looks back on this time, and he says, five times, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Well, that's, that's different. That's a beating with a whip. But look at the next phrase. Three times I was beaten with rods. He's endured this multiple times in his life. Let's jump back into the story. Verse 23, part B says this, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Jailers in the first century were always former Roman soldiers. See, the very, very best civil service jobs were given to the the vets. He's an ex-GI. So this guy's tough. This is a jailer who served in the military. He's been under command and he's given command. Commanding officers were given the cushy jobs to be in civil service positions when they retired. So we got an ex-GI who's throwing them in prison, guarding them securely. So add to the public stripping, add to the humiliation of the whipping, the beating, which is completely illegal. They've got imprisonment going on. In a maximum security environment, they've been thrown into a dungeon. And verse 24 says, they fastened their feet in stocks. Now perhaps what pops in your mind is you're thinking of the bottom of a pirate ship and somebody gets a little anklet wrapped around their legs. I want to help correct that thought for you. See, the Romans were really, really good at torture, weren't they? They had developed systems for torturing people. And the stocks in the dungeon was one of those instruments of torture. So the stocks that they're actually speaking of sat fairly high, mounted on the wall, about three and a half to four feet. And the purpose in it was to take a board, have holes in it that the ankles would fit through, flip the prisoner over on their back, spread their legs as far as they possibly could, insert their ankles through the board, and leave them suspended with their legs in the air, as long as they needed to, laying on their back. Well, what has just happened to these two men? They've been rotted. They've had their backs split open. 
They've been beat severely, and now they're laying on a dungeon floor in stocks in the midst of this environment. This jailer wants to take no chances. He's been given an order. These are special prisoners. Make them secure. Don't let them escape. So they're put in the most secure part of the prison. Do you think Satan might be behind that? See, every time we see Satan act, it's either in two ways. It's either to infiltrate, like you see with the demon-possessed girl, to get in among them and cause confusion. Or when he cannot infiltrate, he tries to persecute from the outside. So we see Satan acting again. Satan behind us. What a reception. This is the very first European city where Jesus is proclaimed. These people have come a long way to be there, right? We studied this last week. They wanted to go to the Black Sea. God said no. They wanted to go to Ephesus. God said no. So God ends up with them in Troas, and that's where He says, come on over to Greece. So who brought them to Philippi, church? God. God brought them there. And now they find themselves in a dungeon, stripped, beaten, and in prison. And from a human point of view, it looks like it's over. It looks like the work in Philippi is done. But hear my cliche again. God stands ready to transform your problems into praise. You get a chance to check yourself on that. Do I really believe that? Do I believe that in the presence of His power, my problems can become opportunities for praise? Because if God wants you released, there's no prison that can hold you, right? There's no prison that can hold you. Whether it's an emotional prison or a physical prison, there's nothing that can hold you if God wants you released. Verse 25 says this, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What are they doing? They're unleashing the most powerful weapon they possibly have. And instead of calling for God's wrath, they're calling for opportunities to praise God. You find two men praying and praising God. I know this about pain. I I know that when it's midnight and you're in pain and you're wounded and hurting, midnight is not the easiest time to praise God, is it? There's something about the darkness that just envelops us. There's something about the midnight hour that causes you to not want to praise God. And it's really, really hard in your own strength in moments like that to praise God. You may have your own pitch black dungeon going on right now. And you may find yourself at two in the morning finding yourself with a desire to escape the dungeon. And in the midst of that, wondering how can I possibly praise God in the midst of what I'm going through. The verse I'm about to take you to understand in the book of Psalms was written by David when he's in a very similar environment. People are hunting him trying to kill him, and he's hiding out in caves. But look what he writes about singing in the midst of that. Psalm 42, verse 8. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. See, songs in the night, church, they come from God. It's not in the power of man to praise God in the middle of the night. 
It's not within our capacity to do that. Songs in the night, they come from God. They're God's songs that come with you when it's the darkest hour. Charles Spurgeon, I love what he said. He was reading this passage and he just had this really brief comment about it. Look with me up on the screen. He said, any fool can sing in the day. Right? It's true, right? We can all do that. We can all show up at church at 9.15 in the morning and begin jumping into our worship service when we're in this nice air-conditioned environment. But what about two in the morning when you're in the middle of the dungeon? That's when there's a real measure of whether or not the joy of the Spirit is within you. See, I'm, I'm guessing these guys, understandably, can't sleep. Absolutely appalling circumstances. You, you understand what I've described for you so far. These open wounds, they're in chains, they're in stocks, maximum security prison. I'm going to add to it, what do you think, maybe there's rats present? See, my wife would be done at that point. Like, okay, I give, get me out of here. This is horrible where they find themselves in the middle of the night. I'm thinking they can't sleep. So in spite of everything going on around them, instead of moaning, they're praying and they're singing. How can I praise God in tough situations like that? How can I find myself in a really hard place like that and praise God in the midst of it? I'm personally convinced they understand something that many Christians have missed today. Many individuals who walk around with sour looks on their faces that have an absence of joy and peace in moments like this have missed what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that your joy is not dependent upon your circumstances. It absolutely is not. Because we don't worship circumstances, do we? We don't rejoice in circumstances. What do we rejoice in? We rejoice in the God who's over our circumstances. Is God over your circumstances this morning? He's the God who rules and reigns over circumstances. And because circumstances don't determine our destiny, God does. Paul could powerfully write Romans 8.28. That's why this is our anchor verse this morning. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. See, He's the God of circumstances, all things. He's over all of those things. And He's working behind the scenes even when it doesn't feel like it. See, joy in a moment like that, that's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's what Galatians writes about. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, meekness, self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So what we see is a fruit of the Spirit of these individuals. They're yielded to the control of God in their life. You ever met a sad Christian? I have. I've met lots of sad Christians in my life. Uncle Maury, my, my uncle who was kind of a mentor over me, said, you know, the sad Christians walk around looking like they were raised on a lemon. They're just puckered up all the time. Praise Jesus, I'm so happy. What's up with that? Where is the joy of God working through them? See, here's what I want you to see. Paul and Silas are not basing their theology. Big church word means your understanding of God. They're not basing their understanding of God on their circumstances. They're evaluating their circumstances in light of what they know to be true about God. That's how you have joy at two in the morning when you're laying on the dungeon floor locked in stocks after you've been beat and you can still praise and sing. I love what Dr. Luke included in verse 25. We know that they're not only heard by God, they're heard by the prisoners around them. What's going on? Well, Paul's just reemphasizing what we've already learned about him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It's the power of God unto salvation. He's not ashamed even though he's been stripped naked and he's laying on a dungeon floor. He's still willing to praise God. So it's the middle of the night. And the singing is echoing up from the bottom of the dungeon. And the prisoners are listening intently. And God responds. Go with me to verse 26. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. I told Gary and Michael yesterday I didn't have any Greek words for you guys this weekend and I was lamenting that and then I realized there it is, megas seismos. A great earthquake. I love the word megas by the way. Megas seismos. It's a great earthquake. God's shaking not only the foundations of the prison, And these guys can run in this moment if they want to, but they don't. The earthquake apparently rocks the jailer's house as well. And if you know anything about Roman law and Roman history, you understand in the first century, a jailer is responsible for all the prisoners, especially escaped prisoners. Go forward with me to the next verse, verse 27. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Roman law, you lose a prisoner, you're going to face the same consequences that they would have faced had they remained incarcerated. So apparently there's some guys in there in the dungeon that night who are facing capital punishment, who are going to be killed for whatever crimes they committed. And the jailer recognizes rather than face the humiliating execution, I'm going to choose to kill myself. But Paul's focus is locked like a laser on the jailer. And before he can plunge the blade into his own chest, Paul screams out, we're all here. Stop. Move forward with me to the next verse. But Paul, verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Why the others don't attempt to escape, we don't know. Maybe it's the shock of the earthquake. The astonished jailer, he's calling for lights. It's pitch black, obviously. That's why he's asking for lights. He comes in trembling, verse 29, and he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Notice this. All his human efforts to make that prison inescapable have vanished in a moment because God showed up. Because if God wants you set free, you're going to be free. All his attempts at security for the prison have evaporated. He has no control over the situation. Now he's been personally inches from death. He's going to kill himself. But he's got prisoners who won't escape? What do you do with this? The tables have been completely turned. You're looking at a man who's tougher than tough, a Roman ex-GI who's had all of his defenses stripped away and his heart is completely open. Jesus sees this man. You know it in this moment. He understands this man. This jailer brings Paul and Silas out to the courtyard, the very next verse, verse 30, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the very question every human wants an answer to. You can bank on it. There will be someone here this weekend over the course of the three services who's come in here with that question on their heart. 
Every single person wants an answer. That's a deep, deep longing in human nature. Can I be right with God? Is there a way for me to be saved? If you're a Christian or non-Christian this morning, read that and feel the gravity of that question. Do you understand the impact? It's packed with intensity. See, he understands what he's asking. I'm, I'm completely convinced of it. The girl has been following Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy around the capital city of Philippi for days, screaming out. These are men who serve the Most High God. These are men who are telling us the way of salvation. Even if they're trying to confuse, this guy's heard that phrase. What do I have to do to have that salvation? See, within his question, you can envision all the layers going on. This is a man who professionally tortures people. He gets paid to put people in stocks. Any weight you think you're carrying this morning, this guy can match it. He knows exactly the burden that you bear because he's wearing this burden. That's why you see him asking, what do I have to do? Is there deliverance for me? Is that your question this morning? If it is, you're going to love the answer. You're going to see it. It's a very simple answer. It says in verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Remember what we talked about earlier when Paul was sitting down on the bank of the river and I said, when you're speaking with someone who needs to know about Jesus, you just speak to them clearly and concisely and simply. (laughs) Look at that. Could, Could it be more simple? Isn't that a big theological explanation? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See, he doesn't need to perform any works, right? All he needs to do is believe in Jesus. If you asked me the same question this morning, I'd give you the exact same answer that Paul has given them. Salvation is only by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, church? That's all. That's, that's the only way. That's what we looked at in Acts 4.12. Let me remind you of it. Look at it on the screen. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, while you're chewing on that, if you're also tripping over verse 31, when Paul said, you and your household, I want to help you understand that. It, it's not salvation by proxy. He's not saying your whole family is saved because you're expressing faith in Jesus. What it means there is those members of age who are able to believe, because each person has to believe independently, right? Each person has to come to the place where they're believers to be saved. So the faith of the jailer doesn't automatically transfer over to his family. You'll see that in the next verse. You personally this morning have to decide whether or not your grandmother was a Christian. You have to decide, do I follow Jesus or not? You're not saved just because your dad was or your aunt or because your grandmother is. Or maybe because you were raised in a Christian home. They're saved because they hear the Word and believe. And it's clear that Paul is talking to people who are capable of understanding and processing what he's saying. Look with me at the next verse. Verse 32, And they spoke the Word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. He's speaking to people who are processing this. Same way he did with Lydia. If you're confused about belief in Jesus this morning, just two verses to make it really, really clear for you. Simple and concise. John 20, 31 says, Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. To take it one step further, Scripture says this in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
Do you think that's the exact same message that Paul spoke that night, two in the morning, in that household? Sure it is. Incredibly consistent. The same thing they needed to hear. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ and that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. Look at the response. Verse 33. And He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately He was baptized, He and His household. And He brought them into His house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with His whole household. Do you know that one day you're going to meet this jailer in eternity? Isn't that a cool thought? I'm going to hunt this guy down because I think he'd be fun to sit down and talk to. A jailer who becomes a follower of Jesus. I could sit down and talk to that guy for a few hours. It'd be fascinating to hear his take on this story. Jailer turned Jesus follower. How incredibly touching. Look at the transformation you're reading there. The man who puts people in shackles for a living suddenly is intimately aware of the suffering. He's going to bathe his prisoners. He's going to dress their open wounds. They're suffering from this beating they've just taken. Can you imagine the bruising, let alone the bleeding? So a Roman veteran ex-GI is taking his prisoners, who he personally has locked only personally hours before in the stocks, he now has them in his house, sitting at his table, eating his food. How do you explain that kind of transformation? There's only one name that I know that could do that. What's the name, church? Jesus. What else could do that? What else could explain that? See, God's forgiveness is just flooding over him. He's feeling what you feel when you come to the communion table. You pick up the elements and you celebrate what God did for you through Jesus. He knows what forgiveness is now. So we see in verse 33, he's immediately baptized, even though it's after midnight. I was talking to Michael about this. How much fun would it be if he had teenagers in his house? Trying to get teenagers up at night, it would be really, really, really hard. See, it would take an earthquake to get them out of bed, right? Okay, so we've got this earthquake that took place. Dad's almost dead from a knife blade. And then the earthquake, we see the evidence of that, and we've got the whole household being baptized after midnight. Why? Because they want to identify with Jesus. Let's finish the story. It says this in verse 35. This part's really fun. Now when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen, saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore come out now and go in peace. So I'm thinking the jailer's really, really pleased. Thinking, this is like a good thing. You guys get to go free. But the magistrates have made another serious error, and they just don't know it yet. Go forward. Verse 37, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. Kind of looks vindictive, doesn't it? it? Doesn't it look like Paul's a little vindictive there? I, I, that's not what's going on. I want to help you understand this passage and why he's saying what he's saying. First of all, understand he's demanding the chief magistrate personally come escort him out of jail. Come to the jail, receive us, and try and convince us to leave town. See, Paul knows he has the upper hand at this point. He understands He's got a power card that he can play. 
The Roman magistrate has publicly flocked a Roman citizen without a trial. Magistrates lose their jobs over decisions like that. Roman colonies lose their tax-exempt status over decisions like that. What he has done could devastate the entire city of Philippi if Rome hears that Roman citizens were flogged without a trial. Now understand what's going on here. Paul and Silas want to leave with this strong witness of integrity. And they recognize what they need to do is exercise their legal, prote- their legal protection. So Paul wants legal protection for this fledgling church that's just giving birth within the city of Philippi. Here's what would happen if they left secretly. Whatever happened to those guys that we beat in the city square? Where did they go? They must have been guilty of something horrible. They snuck away secretly. Nobody knows what they're at. What do those people believe anyway? See, Paul's looking for legal protection for the sense of the protection of the church. I don't see vindication going on here. Well, maybe a little. Maybe just human nature, a little bit of vindication, right? Maybe there's a little bit of vengeance going on there, but I recognize what he's doing. He's making use of his Roman citizenship to challenge the legality of the treatment. You're looking at a believer who doesn't mind using his knowledge of the legal system of the country that he lives in for the purposes of the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Do we need more people like that? Absolutely. We need people who understand the legal system, who are going to work within it to advance the cause of Jesus. So let's finish the story. It says this in verse 38. The policeman reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Awkward. You've got to appreciate the irony of what's going on here. See, the chief magistrates know the consequences of their actions can be devastating to them and to their city. So they lose no time in getting to the jail to request the departure. But they've got no legal grounds to expel Roman citizens. So they have to plead with them. Would you, would you please leave? They recognize if Paul and Silas stay, there's a chance there's going to be more public unrest here. It's going to provoke more violence. So they're going to comply and they're going to leave, but they're going to take their time about doing it. They're in no hurry and the magistrates are not going to give them any problem. Verse 40, the last verse for this morning. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. See, the church has already grown. It's got brethren, plural there. It's got multiple believers and Lydia has offered her house as a house church. Satan has unleashed his persecution to destroy the church. All it did was add another family to the church. So I want you to think of this. you got this little church in embryo form in Philippi. Just a handful of people. So think of this little fellowship. Way, way less than what we have at New Hope. This little fellowship of believers at a simple worship service the next weekend. So you got Lydia, the incredibly successful businesswoman, and her household standing next to the jailer and his household. And probably the little demon-possessed girl who's been freed. I'm, I'm thinking, just speculating, she's following Jesus now. They're all standing in this worship service together in Lydia's house singing Amazing Grace. I know, it hasn't been written yet, but okay. It, it's my speculation, right? Okay. 
I'm just seeing praise and worship take place. People who have only recently been released of their sins, they know what it is to live in a hostile environment for Jesus. They're in Philippi, and they're going to become the church at Philippi. And once again, Satan is thrown down, overruled by the God who is over the circumstances. The God who's over your circumstances this morning. I'm going to end with five questions that just have one-word answers to them. Very simple, based on what you've heard this morning. Who called Paul and Silas to go to the European continent in the first place? God. Group participation here, okay? God called them, right? Did God know that they were going to face a demon-possessed girl? Did God know that they would be stripped and beaten? That's That's a big one. God knew in advance. Did God know that they'd be put in prison? So, who sent the earthquake? God. Does God stand ready to turn your problems into praise this morning? He may not send an earthquake your way. They don't happen often in Michigan. But He may shake the foundations of whatever's going on in your world to give you opportunity to bring praise to Him. Your God stands ready to turn your problems into praise. Christ followers, if you're willing to speak boldly of Jesus and praise Him no matter the circumstances, God stands ready to turn your problems into reasons for praise. From a humanist view, they would look at what Paul just endured and what you saw in chapter 16 and say, that's your God? I mean, he's, he's like not in control whatsoever. And if he is, he doesn't care one bit. Well, that's a humanist view, but that's not the God of the Bible. God is the God over the circumstances, working behind the circumstances so that we can praise him in the midst of really, really hard times. Because what we know from Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good. Because you love him and he loves you, right? That's your God. That's your God, always working behind the scenes. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, we recognize that we've, we've read such a familiar story, but you cause it to come to life in ways that it's so fresh. Your Holy Spirit does that, and we just give you all the honor and the glory for breathing life into these 2,000-year-old words, giving us a capacity to understand them and how to apply them to our life. Father, I pray that what they've heard this morning will not quickly depart from the minds of individuals who occupy the seats of this auditorium. That what we take with us into the parking lot this afternoon, what we take into the dinner place, what we take into the workplace later this week, that we will remember that you are the God who's over the circumstances. Even when it doesn't feel like it, Father. Give us songs in the night. We ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.